Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and favorite autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're watching Rosewood Season 2, Episode 2, titled Secrets and Silent Killers. So, let's get into it. So, we open to like a club scene, and there's a table of guys just like openly doing drugs. They're just like snorting coke right off the table in front of everyone this club has no boundaries no rules just out in the open and it seems like it's some kind of bachelor party and one of the guys gets up to like go use the bathroom and we see him get into like an argument with someone like as he's walking to the bathroom some random person approaches him and they have some kind of argument and then this guy leaves the argument and he goes to his friend's table and he says he has to call it a night and go home to his wife And he calls his wife and leaves a sweet message saying that he's on his way home. And then we cut to Via and Rosewood. And they're like looking over a case file for Via's husband's death. Apparently he was murdered. And I'm only bringing this up because it ties into like Via was very sensitive this episode about dead husbands. Again, I didn't know that she had a husband. I didn't know he was murdered. We're coming into all of the drama like we always do. Is this the earliest Rosewood episode we've watched? What other episodes have we watched of Rosewood? Gosh, I can't even remember off the top of my head. Because, yeah, I also had no idea she had been married or that she was a widow. Anyway, they find out some suspicious things about Via's husband. We're not going to get too into it. But, you know, if you're into the drama of Rosewood, definitely watch us. So... While they're going over that case, apparently it's like 5 a.m. They've been up all night. Via gets a call to go to a scene across town. Via and Rosewood head to the scene. Rosewood shouldn't even be there. He was not called. He's just tagging along. He's just going for fun. He's He's like, I'll drive you. Oh, yeah. They like drew straws to see who would drive. So they drive in his like bright yellow convertible. Which I love. It's iconic. It is. I do. You know I love Rosewood and his fun little toys that he always has. (laughs) So the scene that they arrive at is at a marsh. And the other detective gives Via the victim's wallet. And the victim's name is Danny Williams. And he's the man that we saw in the opening scene who left the bachelor party early after having an argument because he had to get home to his wife so a few teens had apparently come upon the scene and found him in his car and he has on his wedding ring and via says that she feels bad for the poor wife waiting for her husband to come home rosewood thinks that this guy is a recovering addict because he had calluses on his fingers from repetitive rubbing which is apparently often seen in crack users according to rosewood and i couldn't find like if it, the rubbing was a thing but I didn't know there is a thing called, quote, crack hands. So I found an article on Art Dermatology Online called Crack Hands and Crack Thumbs in Chronic Cocaine Use that had various authors. We will include it in our show notes if you want to read it. And it reported on a case of a 38-year-old male who chronically abused crack cocaine for the past five years, displaying blackened, punctiform, hyperkeratotic lesions on the palms and the ventral surface of his fingers, which is apparently a condition known as crack hands. And the article also said that the lesions are typically seen on the dominant hand and burns on the hands along the callus and blisters are formed along the thumb and they're due to the igniting a crack cocaine pipe lighter. And that is known as crack thumb. So that is something I had never actually heard of. I think this is similar, but not as extreme as like chronic smokers. Yeah. They have calluses and like harder spots on their hands. And you can literally just smell the cigarette smoke on them, too. Right. That's what I thought of as well. And then I was just trying to see if there was actually, like, something. Yeah. Because he just, like, Rosewood just, like, pokes his head in the car. Again, this isn't his case. They haven't called him in yet. He wasn't even assigned to this case. This is... Did he have gloves on, even? I don't, I don't think even he know. did. He's poking but... around in the car, and he comes out and says all these things, like Rosewood does. 
He also said that there was scar tissue between his toes where he used to inject himself. So that is a site where people sometimes will inject themselves if they're trying to hide it. So Rosewood says the setup seems too clean for a relapse overdose. And also the victim injected himself in what looks like the middle of his arm this time, which is another common injection site. But all of his previous self-injections were between his toes or other places that seemed to be hidden. So Rose would think this odd that this one time that he relapses, he would pick such an obvious spot if it seems like he'd had practice. It, not practice, but he had used drugs before and done it in less obvious spots. So obviously, Rosewood doesn't think Danny injected himself. And there's also a tourniquet around the victim's arm where he was injected. And Rosewood says that there's no teeth marks on the tourniquet. So Danny couldn't have tied the tourniquet that tight on his own with just one hand without using his teeth. So he thinks someone else tied it. And he also noticed that the calluses are on his left hand, indicating that he was a lefty, meaning that he would have likely injected himself into his right arm. But his injection was on his left. So... Whoever killed Danny knew about his history of drug abuse and was trying to use it against him to cover up a murder. They also found a set of prints on the syringe at the scene and are going to run it for prints in their database. So Via is going to talk to the victim's wife, see what her husband might have been involved in, and at the autopsy at Rosewood's practice, so I guess Rosewood was called (laughs) for the case eventually. Or he just took over. That's what I'm wondering too. I wonder, (laughs) I'm picturing like the lead detective... Well, I mean, maybe Via is the lead detective, but I'm picturing like the head of the department is just like, well, damn it. I guess we have to have Rosewood now because he already poked all over the scene. Like he's just like digging around in the car. It's like, all right, well, I guess you're going to be our M.E. Right. Like there's probably like a hierarchy or like a list of primary, secondary and so on of other pathologists. And Rosewood's like, step aside. I got this. He just shows up and sticks his hands all over it. Inserts himself. And they're like, well, I guess it's got to be you now. <laughs> I guess it's yours. He contaminated this whole scene. <laughs> So at the autopsy at Rosewood's private practice, it's a private practice, right? Like he has his own. It is a private practice, but I don't think that this case would be a private case. I think it would have the medical examiner or coroner taking jurisdiction over it. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I don't understand the rules behind how they determine what goes to Rosewood and what goes to the actual ME. Rosewood doesn't play by the rules. (laughs) He shows up in his yellow little car with his fun little gadgets. And he tells you what's going on. You don't tell him. (laughs) I kind of love him for that. Doesn't take no for an answer. Yeah. You just got to know that there's someone at like the precinct who's just so sick of him. (laughs) There's someone that's They're like, oh my God, this guy again. There's just at least one person is just so tired of his shit. (laughs) So anyway, at Rosewood's autopsy, they say that the police had identified traces of heroin in the syringe on his arm. They're going to run a full tox on the victim to see how much heroin he had in his system and also if the heroin was mixed with anything. So Rosewood says that if it's street heroin, they might be able to pinpoint where the killer got it, depending on like what's also in the heroin. So to see how much heroin he had in his system, this is what we would call a quantitative drug test. So it's qualitative versus quantitative. So a qualitative test tells you if a particular substance or analyte is present. So it'll just be a positive or negative result. A quantitative test tells you how much the quantity of the analyte is present. So Rosewood wants a quantitative drug test run. So Danny, the victim, worked in a hardware store, but the tech at the autopsy notices that his hair is dyed and his nails are manicured, which makes him seem like he's well-groomed. Which, I mean, people at hardware stores can be well-groomed. This guy was being judgy. There could be some hot guys at the hardware store. (laughs) 
Isn't that like where they always spend their time? <laughs> Isn't that where they congregate? The Hawkeye, <laughs> the Hawkeye hardware store? Haven't <laughs> 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 we all heard of that? The Hawkeye hardware store? That's the name of the episode. The Hawkeye hardware store. <laughs> I actually can't get, I can't stop laughing. That's so good. So anyway. This was a hot guy at the hardware store, according to this tech. So Rosewood and Via go to talk to Danny's wife. So is Rosewood just like abandoning the autopsy to go into? I noticed that. I think it's just the way they shoot the show. But there's so many cut scenes to him like being in the middle of the autopsy and then interrogating someone and then back at the autopsy. Yeah. Do they have the body just out all day long? I don't know. For him to just come in and out as he pleases. And the other texts are like, well, Rosewood isn't here, so I guess we really can't do that much. Just gotta wait for him to come back. Can you imagine? I would be so pissed if I was a tech in Rosewood's office and, like, he just kept leaving. And, like, I did all the dissection and, like, I couldn't move forward without him and I'm just sitting there waiting while he's just running. I would be so mad. Running around in his yellow car <laughs> with his little gadgets. And then you call him, he's like, I'm an hour away. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm so I showed up at another crime scene and just inserted myself into it. And you're just like, damn it, Rosewood. Finish this one. That. We're in the middle of something. I honestly kind of love Rosewood. But I was wondering that if it was just like the way they shot things like out of sequence, because he jumps a lot from like being in the morgue to being at the scene to being back in the morgue to being back at the scene. And it makes it seem like the whole autopsy takes like forever, which that's something when I first started, my boyfriend brought up to me. He asked like how many cases we would do on average. And I was like, oh, like maybe like three or four a day. And he's like, oh, I thought it'd be like three a week. And I'm wondering if it's because of shows like Rosewood where they drag out <laughs> one autopsy. <laughs> for what seems like forever because he keeps jumping in and out oh my god yeah probably i mean like i feel like our average now has picked up so i feel like it's more around an average of five or so a day also depending on the day because some days are slow like today we only did two cases but yesterday we did five Mm -hmm. and sometimes we're back there all day doing cases but the two that we did today we were done in two hours yeah But if we were working with Rosewood, we'd do one for the entire week, apparently. But anybody, if you're curious on how long an actual autopsy takes, one that is not complicated, between like 45 minutes and an hour, if there's nothing suspicious or weird about the case and it's just a straightforward autopsy, it's like an hour long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that question a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So Rosewood dips out of the autopsy apparently and he and via go to talk to danny's wife and the wife says that none of this makes sense and they ask if her husband had any enemies or anyone that he had an issue with and the wife says that everybody loved him and isn't that always what a lie <laughs> what a lie don't be liars they always say that in these shows oh he didn't he didn't have any enemies except for that one guy who did say he wanted to kill him <laughs> <laughs> So Via asks the wife if Danny's drug use was public knowledge, and the wife claims that Danny didn't use drugs. Rosewood tells her that her husband was a recovering addict, and whoever killed him knew that. And they ask her where Danny was last night, and she tells him about the bachelor party, and I it was at a place I think called China's Den. And she said she got a message when he was on his way home, but he just never arrived home, and she had already fallen asleep when he called. So she also goes on to say that Danny was the perfect guy that she had waited for her whole life. She says that none of this is fair. And Via sympathizes after just realizing all of the stuff about her husband's past. She's very emotionally involved in this case. So Via and Rosewood go to China's Den, which is a strip club. And (laughs) it's 
so like everybody recognizes Rosewood, which also just makes me love him even more. He's just like, where does he get the time to have? He's constantly solving cases with Via. He has a private autopsy practice, and he just like hangs out at the club enough to like be known by everyone when he walks in. This man, this man does it all. Do you think he hangs out at the Hawkeye hardware store? Oh, I think that he might own the Hawkeye hardware store. (laughs) Oh my god. It's probably next to the strip club, so he doesn't have to go very far. The Hawkeye hardware store is- Convenient for when they have bachelor parties. I was going to say, the Hawkeye hardware store is for the straight women bachelorette parties. (laughs) And then the the straight bachelor parties go to (laughs) China's Den next door. (laughs) Or anyone who's interested in hot guys at the hardware store is in invited not just straight women is invited to the hawkeye hardware store so via asked the bartender if he recognizes danny and the bartender says that he was with a group that was quote partying pretty hard last night and he says that danny was drinking but that he didn't touch the quote other stuff and rosewood can tell he's like dodging the subject and tells the bartender that they're not there to bust him and they really just want to solve this murder and the bartender says that his friends were doing coke but that danny left shortly after they started and didn't touch any of it He had gotten into an argument with a random guy by the bathroom just before he left, but the bartender doesn't know anything about that. So Via asked for the security cam footage from that night, and back at the autopsy... He's just jumping all over. He just jumps back in. Rosewood and the techs are working, and Via comes in saying that the prints on the syringe came back belonging to a Connor Thorne, which is great. They have a lead, right? Wrong. It turns out Connor Thorne is Danny. Danny Williams was a fake name. And even crazier, Connor Thorne already has a death certificate in Washington, D.C. from three years ago. So it looks like this guy was running from something, and whatever it was, caught up with him. They find the footage of him as Connor. I don't know where they got this footage. It's just footage of him in an office. It was very Wolf of Wall Street of him in D.C. partying with a bunch of business bros. And so he apparently was like, who took that video? Was it like security camera? I want to know who took that video. There's like, they're like in an office. It looked like it was just someone on a phone recording him because oh, it was like weird. close up of him like getting danced on by a woman. But they were like in the office. Very Wolf of Wall Street. It was literally like i think they even said that he was like jordan belfort or <laughs> thought he was like jordan belfort which is wolf of wall street connor slash danny was a hedge fund manager don't ask me what that is should have looked it up i don't do financial stuff i should have called my sister <laughs> she she would know so he's a hedge fund manager in dc who loved cars women and drugs he started running a ponzi scheme and embezzled clients money When he was about to get caught, he faked a suicide by pretending to walk into the ocean down in Virginia Beach and just never returning. He had received a lot of death threats before his, quote, suicide, and before his, quote, death, there was about $2.5 million unaccounted for. So maybe whoever killed him was trying to get their money back, and Rosewood thinks that Danny slash Connor was a changed man because he wasn't living a luxurious life in Miami like he used to do in D.C. He wasn't well-known at China's Den like Rosewood is. He wasn't driving around in a yellow car like Rosewood is. So Via says that at least two of his victims from the Ponzi scheme had committed suicide after what he had done, so he shouldn't get to start over and play house with a poor, unsuspecting woman. There are 954 victims of Connor's Ponzi scheme, so there's a long list of suspects. Back at the exam, again, we're just flipping right back. (laughs) to the autopsy 
The tech that runs the toxicology says that she keeps running the samples but gets different results. She says the 6-MAM, which is 6-monoacetyl morphine, which is an opioid and also one of the three active metabolites of heroin. The other metabolites are morphine and the much less active 3-monoacetyl morphine. But she says the 6-MAM is all over the place and the O2 is inconsistent and she doesn't know what she's doing wrong. Pippi, Rosewood's sister and also his toxicologist at his private practice, asked the tech where she drew the blood from. Tech says that she drew a sample from his arm near the injection site and also the femoral artery, which is a green flag. We've discussed this before, but peripheral blood is very much preferred, especially in a quantitative drug test. It can give a much more accurate read based on postmortem distribution of the blood. So femoral artery is a really good spot. Again, also just a refresher, femoral artery is in your leg. It's like the major artery for your lower extremities. So Pippi guesses that the tech found morphine in the sample from the arm and not the sample from the femoral blood. The femoral blood only showed alcohol, meaning that the victim was injected with heroin after he died because the heroin did not circulate. No beating heart, nowhere for the drugs to go. But they had completed the autopsy and there doesn't seem to be any other cause of death. So Via and Bruce would go to talk to Danny's wife, Jenny, and she doesn't take the news that her husband was living under a fake name very well. They show her a picture of the man that he fought with at the nightclub the night he died, and Jenny says that's Troy Randolph, their neighbor who lives across the street. Via and Bruce would go to the neighbor's house, and Via breaks in when she hears gunfire, even though she knows that it's like he's watching a TV show and there's gunfire in that TV show, so... That gives her the excuse to then break down his door because she can claim, oh, I heard some gunfire shots. So maybe a red flag for that? Yeah. She's just, she has her, her emotions I, are taking yeah. over in this case. Yeah. She's hanging out with Rosewood too much. He plays by his own rules. Just shows <laughs> up and does whatever he wants. So Rosewood starts looking around while the neighbor guy, who is clearly upset that two strangers just barged into his house complains to Via that he knows his rights and they can't just come bursting into his house like that. But, like, he's not wrong. He's, yeah. Like, would anything that they find be admissible? I don't think so, because there's no warrant and there's no reason to suspect anything other than the wife just saying, yeah, that's my neighbor. Yeah. She claims she heard gunfire, so that's going to be her excuse. Yeah. Yeah, that's her reason. Rosewood finds photos of Danny and Connor that make it look like This guy, Troy, was stalking him. They open up, like, this chest and all the photos are just there. They're the classic, like, black and white, like, far away photos. Like, you can tell they were using a zoom lens, just, like, watching them (laughs) from far away. Yeah. That you see in every, like, stalker movie. They bring Troy in for questioning, and he says that he's interested in becoming a PI, and he was just practicing taking covert photos. That's so creepy. I mean, I know it's not actually what he's doing, but, like... (laughs) Like, that's so scary to think, like, oh, I'm practicing being a private investigator, so I took weird photos of my neighbor when they didn't know. <laughs> like, what? Even if that was the scenario, and say he was practicing, would you tell your neighbor, hey, I'm going to be taking weird photos of you, but it's all for fun? I... Like, what if somebody came up to you and said that? Oh, absolutely not. No, thank you. I'd be like, please don't talk to me ever again. I do not consent to this. Anything. do not take random photos of me like i like, don't <laughs> don't be weird it's such a weird it, like he's trying so this isn't the truth this isn't what he was doing but like that's such a weird lie like it's it's so weird to be like oh right he couldn't have come up with anything better i was practicing stalking someone <laughs> like what via isn't buying it 
And Troy eventually confesses that he didn't think Danny deserved his wife, Jenny. He says that when Danny wouldn't come home, he would see her at night crying, and he hated seeing her like that. He saw her because he was just being a creep. He's creeping. Like, he, did he? That's what I didn't understand. I was like, was he like looking through the window seeing her, or was was like he hanging out with her and saw her upset? But I think he was just like creeping. No, I don't think he was hanging out with her. I think he was either looking through his camera or literally like stalking her through the window. Now I'm going to be like worried that someone's taking covert photos of me. <laughs> I'm not interesting enough, but like, <laughs> but now I'm just going to be worried for no reason. <laughs> he wanted Jenny to choose him over Danny. So he didn't want Danny dead because now it wouldn't be Jenny's choice. Troy says he succeeded in finding dirt on Danny and that he was a liar and a cheat. Danny was having an affair with an attractive doctor, and Troy thinks that the doctor might have killed Danny after Danny tried to cut off the affair. At the autopsy, Rosewood comes in with all the contents of Danny's car and says that they have to go over it with a fine-tooth comb and leave no organ unturned. Why does he say organ? It's just evidence. I want to know. Yeah, leave no evidence unturned. unturned but he, the way he says it, he's like, leave no organ unturned. Like, weren't you going to do that anyway? Like, it's a full autopsy. Like, you think it's a murder. You're going to take everything out. Aren't you the one dissecting You're going to take it all out. Like, not these texts. Maybe, I mean, we barely see Rosewood at this practice. He's off doing everybody else's job. I never see him cut. Oh, you do? You never see him cut. You never see him in like full PPE like how the other like autopsy shows are. Yeah. He's always in like a nice suit driving his car. On a scale of Rosewood to Ducky from NCIS. Like he's barely in the morning. He's, we're gonna create a scale of like how often these pathologists actually do their job on it. The scale is. That's, we should. That's a good idea. The scale is Rosewood to Ducky from NCI because I well Ducky sometimes goes to scenes but we always he's always doing the autopsy but Ducky's always cutting and doing autopsies after he goes to like the initial scene he's not like interrogating people he's like yeah after he goes to the initial scene he does he he only pays attention to the body at the scene and then he goes to the morgue and he does his job in the morgue so Mm -hmm. Rosewood to Ducky is our scale that's how we're rating all these doctors from now on it took us a year to figure that out I know (laughs) So Rosewood then gets a call from Via saying that Danny met his mistress once a week at a cafe. Via doesn't know who this woman is, but that she runs a Narcotics Anonymous meeting across from the cafe, and that's where she would meet Danny at. Rosewood and Via go to the NA meeting, and Via goes into the meeting after it's finished and approaches this doctor slash Danny's mistress at the refreshment table. She pretends to be someone Danny knew and says that she was surprised that he didn't show up to the meeting. The doctor introduces herself as Malia and says that Danny was her sponsor. She denies that there was anything ever between them, and Malia quickly figures out that Via isn't a friend of Danny's and asks what happened to him. Meanwhile, Rosewood is talking to another person from the meeting, a skater-looking guy, and he's also pretending to be a friend of Danny's, and this skater dude says that he isn't surprised that Danny sent Rosewood to the meeting, and that Danny blesses every life that he touches. He says Danny was the best thing that ever happened to him, and that he set him up with a scholarship when he got clean. He also says that Danny had a positive impact on almost everyone in the room. Rosewood points out that the skater dude seems a little on edge and asks if he can help. The skater says no and that he's just worried because Danny never misses a meeting. Via and Rosewood leave and Via tells Rosewood that there was nothing between Malia and Danny and that Malia just mistook Danny's kindness for flirtation and kissed him after their last meeting. And Danny did not reciprocate it because he was a married man. 
Via puts together that Danny was able to help all these people in N.A. with the money he had stolen from his embezzling and Ponzi scheme. She finds a hidden bank account that Danny had that he used to help his N.A. friends and that his wife didn't know about. It looks like he was trying to make amends, however, there was a large amount of funds taken out of Danny's account the night before he died, and the money went to Troy Randolph's account, the neighbor who was in love with Danny's wife, Jenny. So... Troy had figured out that Danny was Connor Thorne, but didn't tell the detective that he knew when they questioned him. So back in the morgue, Rosewood says that he found a white powdery residue on Danny's items in the evidence box, which seems to be the same residue that was on his clothing. But it wasn't cocaine like they had originally thought. It was human nail keratin, meaning that Danny's nails weren't manicured like the tech originally thought. The killer had filed them before leaving. Rosewood thinks that Danny must have scratched the killer while fighting for his life. So, Rosewood found a high-density polyethylene, and what polyethylene is, it's a thermoplastic made from petroleum, and two sets of DNA in the nail powder. It was Danny's DNA and someone else's that they needed to find out. Pippi says that the polyethylene is from the bag that the killer filled with nitrogen and placed over Danny's head. Nitrogen replaces oxygen in the body and suffocates the person from the inside, leaving no trace. The tech that ran the tox earlier says that the O2 levels were inconsistent, and Pippi goes on to say that the O2 levels in venous and arterial blood can differ significantly when someone inhales inert gas like nitrogen, which is true, so we give a green flag for this. Inert gas asphyxiation is a form of asphyxiation or suffocation, and that's the result of breathing an inert gas like nitrogen, argon, helium, or methane in the absence of oxygen or in low quantities of oxygen. The term physiologically inert is used to indicate a gas which has no toxic or anesthetic properties and does not act upon the heart or hemoglobin. Instead, the gas acts as a simple dilutant to reduce oxygen concentration in inspired gas and blood to dangerously low levels, thereby eventually depriving all cells in the body of oxygen. Rosewood tells the tech to run the DNA through the sequencer so they can catch their killer. Meanwhile, the captain is interrogating Troy again, and he admits that he knew Danny was Connor and that he blackmailed him to get money. Troy says he didn't kill Danny, and Via realizes that he knows who did. Just then, Rosewood comes in saying that the DNA showed that the killer wasn't Troy. Cut to Danny's wife Jenny being interrogated and she says that of course her DNA would be all over Danny. He was her husband. Via asks her to roll up her sleeves and Jenny has scratches all along her arms. Via thinks that Troy had shown Jenny everything that he had dug up on Danny about his past life, including the drug addiction, and Via believes that Jenny found everything out about Danny and she killed him. However, another detective found out that Jenny's father is one of the men who committed suicide after Connor lost all his money. So Jenny knew who Danny was all along, and her plan was always to kill him. She didn't kill him right away because she wanted to find the money first. This was the money that she felt entitled to. Jenny says that Danny got what he deserved. She played the long game. Like she... The longest long game. She found this man, pretended she didn't know who he was before, married him, built a life with him, had a house with him, and then killed him. She played the long game. I saw it, I kind of saw it coming that maybe she did it, but I didn't see it. I thought the same thing as Via. I thought she found out he had all this, like, 
bad stuff in his past and he had a lot of money, but I did not see that she was related to someone who died by suicide because of what happened with the Ponzi scheme. So that was a good twist. It's always the wife. It's always the spouse. Or husband or spouse. Yeah. Or the hot guy at the hardware store. You never know. <laughs> Those hot guys. The no, they're store. sus. They're sus. Don't trust them. They're fun to look at. Don't trust them. <laughs> So the true crime that we found for this week is pretty on the nose for what happened in the episode, minus the murder. Uh, So maybe not totally on the nose, but it involves a man who faked his suicide after a failed Ponzi scheme. So pretty on the nose after that. I I literally just like Googled man fakes death Ponzi scheme. And there's like, this is the first thing that came up. Yeah, it wasn't. It was like the most prominent one to come up. Like it's, it's apparently very well known. I had never heard of it. But this is the case of Aubrey Lee Price. So in 2011, Price was the director of the Montgomery Bank and Trust in ALE, Georgia, and Price raised and then lost $40 million. And he raised this from 115 clients at his private investment firm. At his trial, prosecutors said that he misspent, embezzled, and lost $21 million belonging to the Montgomery Bank and Trust. So the trial happens in 2013 because in June of 2012, he was presumed dead by everyone, including his family. He even left behind suicide notes for his wife and four children saying that he was going to die on a ferry boat. So he allegedly faked his own death by appearing to jump off a Key West ferry. And this was right before the bank closed with its assets and reserves depleted. He was declared legally dead in December of 2012. But in December 2013, Price was pulled over in Brunswick, Georgia, for driving a truck with illegally tinted windows. He eventually pleaded guilty to one count each of securities fraud, wire fraud, and bank fraud. And during his sentencing in 2014, he spoke for nearly 45 minutes asking for leniency and defending his actions. He said... The problem is, we didn't know some things about the bank. Some things were hidden from us. My story will be about restitution. The only life I have left is my future life. My past is gone. But some of his victims also spoke at his sentencing. 20 of his victims, who were investors in the firm Price founded, were in court that day, and three of them spoke. Mary Jo Peters, who had known Price for a decade and considered him an advisor as well as a friend, said, he murdered my future. My life is now forever changed and will not get any better. It's like he gave me an incurable disease. Sherry Thomason, who lost $500,000 of her and her husband's retirement savings through Price, still asked the court to show him mercy. She said, financially, the loss is incomprehensible and emotionally, it was heartbreaking. We believe we are victims, but we don't believe Price intended to swindle us. And we take him at his word that he is repentant now and we ask the court to consider leniency which is a very nice and forgiving sentiment. But in an unpublished memoir by Price, he does admit that he, quote, deceitfully devised a plan to use the bank's security account and begin trading those funds in hopes to making bigger returns to build the bank's capital back up and pay the investors back. So he knew he was being deceitful. He claimed in his hearing that he was also a victim, but he, for some reason, wrote in a memoir that he knew what he was doing. So he claimed he was duped into investing in the doomed bank by Pete Robinson, who is a friend and advisor of the Georgia governor, Nathan Deal, who was related to the bank's founders. In an exclusive interview with Atlanta Magazine, Price also claimed that he was, he did so much during his like time on the lam, in his like 18 months, I think he was missing or declared dead. He was a drug runner, a pimp, and a cage fighter. 
and these are all just things he claimed. It's the author, I read the Atlanta Magazine article, and I'll also link it in our show notes, didn't seem to believe a lot of what he said and called these, he said, he claimed to be all of these things among other, quote, unlikely vocations during what Price referred to as his, quote, departure from the seemingly simple and successful life he had known for most of his life. He had aliases, including Jason, Diesel, and my personal favorite, Gator. And he confessed to... <laughs> Jess is laughing at me, <laughs> talking about this man named Gator. He's from... This is from Georgia, right? Yeah. That's a, such a Georgian name. If you're going to, like, go by a fake name, Diesel and Gator. I, I just love that... That's it, so on point. It was Jason... Which is just so normal. <laughs> and then Diesel and Gator. Like, like, Diesel and Gator are pretty unique names. Wouldn't you want a super common name that someone will forget? I I also thought that. Maybe he was Jason most of the time, and then, like, he got comfortable. And he was like, and I'm Diesel now. He's like, you know what? I'm, I've always wanted <laughs> to be called Diesel or Gator. This is such an obscure movie reference, but... Have you seen The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and no. Mark Wahlberg? It's such a, it's like a dumb, fun movie. And in it, you find out Will Ferrell's character, who's like the stereotypical play-by-the-book, like good cop, was accidentally was a pimp in college. And he like didn't... Accidentally? Yes, it's so ridiculous. But he went by Gator. So as soon as I read Gator in this article, I thought of Will Ferrell being like amazing an accidental pimp <laughs> maybe this is where he got his inspiration i don't know i forget when the other guys came out but i think it was around like 2014 or like 2010s so anyway price confessed to also taking cocaine using marijuana and becoming addicted to adderall while he was on the lam and while in custody in county jail price claimed that he had three job offers like after he was caught for faking his death and like losing all of this money he claimed why i don't know if this was real like not like this might have just been him talking to this reporter for the atlantic magazine uh atlanta magazine not atlantic and he had three job offers and thought that he could make half a million a year writing research as a research analyst for hedge funds he also said he could become a tax preparer and do his former clients taxes for free so like he was trying to make amends but he wanted to do something financially to help his family and also in his court at sentencing were his wife and three out of his four children and allegedly they showed little emotion and just kind of seemed emotionally drained from this entire thing which very understandable i can't imagine the emotional toll that all of this would take on a family so federal prosecutor brian rafferty spoke at the end of the hearing and said he's been lying to people for days for months for years he woke up every morning with a new lie but the curious thing about this case is he didn't do it for the greed there's no evidence of that he's here now because of his own pride and arrogance he could admit that he just wasn't good at what he did burn i yeah i really want to do a deeper dive on what his life was like on the lamb or what his accounts of what his life were like on the lamb in his unpublished memoir in his unpublished memoir i want to i want to hear from gator <laughs> i want to I want to know what alias that was. The I, star of the show. I think, I forgot to mention it here, but I think he also, before he was a banker and faked his own death, he was also either a minister or a priest, or he did something with the church, I believe. Wow, that's like a 180. Yeah, but I got all this information from the Atlanta article, which I will include in the show notes, and also just a CBS News article, which will also be included in the show notes. But yeah, this was 
crazy. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page, though. I was trying to find just, like, a Wikipedia page just so I could get, like, a quick little summary and breakdown of the events, but he doesn't. I couldn't find one right away. It was just a bunch of news articles about how crazy this whole thing is. He's not that popular yet for a Wikipedia page. (laughs) Maybe I just couldn't find it. He did have a page on the FBI website, though, I think. Oh, maybe he is popular. I was going to (laughs) say. That's still pretty big. I just can't believe the accuracy between the similarity between this and the Rosewood episode. Yeah, wait, hold on. I want to look up when this Rosewood episode came out. Or if it was just a straight up, because what was it? He was he was involved in a Ponzi scheme. It was either this guy watched the the show and was like, I gotta do this, or the Rosewood writers knew about this guy, and maybe they're one of them was from Georgia. I'm looking it up. It aired after it was September 2016. This aired, so they probably got the inspiration from him because he was sentenced oh, in 2014. They got the inspiration from this. How funny of a twist would it be if this guy was just the biggest Rosewood fan? <laughs> that would have made it even better. It's just insane. He's just the biggest Rosewood fan, but particularly that one episode, <laughs> not like the rest of it. He doesn't try to be a pathologist. He's like, you know what, this guy. <laughs> not the. I don't need the murder part. Just the Ponzi scheme. Just the Ponzi scheme and faking faking my own death by jumping in the ocean that's the same exact way that the guy in the show did it or he walked into the ocean he jumped off a ferry this guy the real life he jumped off a ferry in the show he like walked into the ocean yeah they took this guy's life and just made an episode out of it i'm pretty sure they did but who's to say i'm to say the details (laughs) do line up pretty well So to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and one red flag. So in our opinion, this episode of Rosewood does pass in terms of forensic accuracy and true crime accuracy. For real, like 10 out of 10 for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye!